Hello there. So um, I'm Jack Melling, the Research Communications Officer at Rand Europe. So we're a not-for-profit research organisation based in Cambridge, uh, just near Mitcham's Corner in the Westbrook Centre. On behalf of Rand Europe, I'd like to say uh, thank you to everyone for attending our sponsored event today, You Are What You Sleep. Uh, we have an incredibly strong line of panellists here today. Uh, Dr. Dagmara Dimitriou is the uh, Director of Lifespan Learning and Sleep Lab at uh, University College London. She's going to be talking about the impact of sleep on the development of children and in development <coughs> disorders. Uh, Dr. Wendy Troxell is from our, our affiliate organisation, the RAND Corporation. She has flown over from the US, especially to be here. Uh, and uh, Wendy has recently been named as one of the top five most influential sleep researchers. Uh, in the world uh, by Five Global, uh, which is Ariana Hoffington's latest venture. She'll be speaking about the impact of uh, sleep on teenagers, family life, and relationships. <coughs> and uh, Marcus de Gongan is, yeah. from, is the managing director of the Third Pillar of Health, uh, an organization that helps uh, businesses overcome fatigue among their workforce. So he does a lot of work with uh, uh, shift workers and uh, such as people working for the police force, one example, and he'll talk about the impact of uh, sleep on businesses, particularly the productivity and performance mm -hmm. of their workers. And uh, finally, uh, we have Rand Europe's senior economist, Marco Hafner. Uh, he'll be talking about the uh, impact of sleep, or rather lack of sleep, on the global economy. So this will focus on five of the world's largest economies, the US, UK, Germany, Japan and Canada in particular. Um, and at the end there'll be a Q&A, uh, so you will have the opportunity to ask questions to our panellists. Um, and uh, as you can tell, we have a lot to cover in an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, so I'd like to introduce the first uh, panellist, uh, Dr. Dagmar Dimitriou. Thank you very much for your introduction. Um, now, as you have already mentioned, I am researching um, sleep in developmental disorders and at the same time children who are typically developing from, from early childhood right to the adolescence. But today I will be briefly talking, because we, have, we don't have that much time, I will be briefly talking about children with developmental disorders and sleep what it is actually. So this time, this is uh, usually my rush time home to get my children to bed by seven, eight o'clock. And I think many people do that. Um, however, what we see nowadays, it's very much ep epidemic tre trend going, to, going forward that children stop sleeping as they're supposed to. They don't receive enough sleep. So I like to start usually from few quotations, and I like those ones the most, that sleep is the primary activity of the brain in early development. I am a developmental psychologist, and I do work on, on brain development, and sleep is really crucial for that. And the other one is, if sleep does not serve an absolutely vital function, then it is the biggest mistake the evolutionary process ever made. <laughs> Now, I'm sure a lot of uh, um, previous prime ministers and a lot of people within the, such as Mar Margaret Thatcher, she used to say, sleep is not important, sleep is for losers, which I would strongly disagree. So what happened in the last 50 years, 
from the research point of view, we see more and more studies coming through telling us that sleep is vital for our memory consolidation in childhood right, right to the adulthood as well. So we need our sleep, optimal sleep, to retain our memories, to learn as well, and it is vital for children. However, still, we don't see enough studies being carried out in uh, early childhood. There are rel relatively little number of studies coming out. Now, the results also can be quite tricky to, to put together because it depends from developmental point of view on the age of the child. It depends also on task demands that we, from a research point of view, we are asking. But what we know so far is that, that sleep is vital. We don't sleep and our brains don't work. They are very, very active. They are rehearsing what is going on and they are, they, we are getting the impacting our lear learning through the day. But one of the slides, one of the pictures here is that we, our children are sleep deprived and we see that cross-culturally, we see it in different countries. In UK, we do work in my laboratory in Saudi Arabia, in China nowadays, which is slightly different picture. They value sleep more than us. Um, and also we see the same in Singapore. But how many people go with their children to GP or to any uh, medical practitioner and is asked, does your ch child sleep? It's actually very rare. Sleep is still taken as a not very important part. And we do have children who need that. So what's the impact of sleep? I put here in general what we know Sleep is important for our cognitive processing. So if a child doesn't sleep, that will have impact on cognitive processing, and in particular on attention. And as adults, we know if we are sleep deprived, our attention goes as well. So the same is for our children. For learning and memory, it is crucial for them to receive enough sleep to be optimal in terms of learning and uh, during the school hours as well. Executive function and language seems to be very, very important here. So we've done quite a few studies recently that even very early on at the age of two to three, if children don't receive enough sleep, that has impact on the learning of words. So the less sleep, the less words and gesturing we, we are seeing. Now, in terms of behavior, that's quite interesting. So children who do not sleep, I'm talking here about typically developing children, they may show ADHD-like profiles and sometimes misdiagnosed as ADHD, but actually they do have sleep problems. Or they may be very much label, labeled as lazy children or children who are just sleepy all the time during the day because they have not received enough sleep, so they may show very different a pattern of lack of sleep, so they have daytime, daytime sleepiness. Now, that also have other problems we are seeing, that if a child doesn't sleep, the mother doesn't sleep, or the father doesn't sleep, or the sibling doesn't sleep. So we see that as global in terms of family functioning. So there is parental stress. Parents who have children who do not sleep, they suffer from sleep problems. They have health issues. They have depression very often. 
Um, also, in terms of physiology and biology, sleep is important for our immune system, for growth and repair of our neurons, and also for appetite. And very much so, if we don't sleep, we will have ADHD-like behaviors sometimes, anxieties and eating disorders. So what I wanted to show you here, that sleep changes developmentally. So with age, our sleep also changes. We go through different cycles, and we also know that we have deep sleep, and we also have REM, rapid eye movement sleep, which is very much our dreaming. So in the early years, children have a lot of REM. So they, that part of sleep, has, that stage of sleep has been very much linked to our, to young children's memories, conso memory consolidations. So the more REM, the, the better learning, the better behavioral and cognitive functioning. And that, they need that because they are very young and they are gaining all this learning through this very early child development. That changes with age and we see declines. So the older we are, the less uh, dreaming uh, we, we need as well. Um, so what we also see here is in the early years, children tend to sleep, infants sleep during the day and during the night very much half-half. And that changes with age. It, it is very much individual. Some children consolidate their sleep patterns to the um, monophasic by the age of six months. Some don't. But by the age of one year, they should be actually sleeping during the, at night and napping during the day. Now, we don't have that much time to talk about napping, but what I can only say that in the UK, most children um, drop their napping by the age of three. It is very different depending on different cultures. In some southern countries, children are still sleeping up to the age of four and five because actually napping is very good for them. Um, and the more we can provide in terms of napping, and I'm sure the panelists will, will talk about older people as well and adolescents, the better it is for their memory, the better it is for their uh, um, mental health and, and also learning. So there are some sleep facts, and some of them are good, that around 10 to 15% of young children typically developing children, they have sleep problems. However, with age, by the age of eight to 10, these problems tend to diminish or they just drop. So children stop having nightmares, stop having any kind of parasomnias. That happens in a lot of children. The bad part is that about 80% of children with any developmental disorders will suffer from sleep problems. And that has huge impact on the family, because as I already said, lack of sleep in a child, that has a huge impact on their families as well. But it is still very little researched. And around the world, there are only a few laboratories that actually looked at sleep problems in um, developmental disorders and uh, carry out research. Um, so, I wanted to mention here more from a research point of view, why do we study developmentally? And 
some of parts are that we have to understand right from the beginning what's going on with the young children going forward. We cannot take snapshots, let's say just looking at adolescents, just looking at little children. We need developmentally to start and tracing it, its origins. We know that brain and cognition, they undergo so many different changes during the infancy and sleep is just crucial um, for, for all, uh, all development. So sleep will have cascading effects on different domains. So I wanted to show you, for example, from more psychological point of view. So if a child has low-level vision problems, so for example, tracing an object from one side to, uh, to the other, and we've seen that, for example, in children with Down syndrome, and we've seen it in Williams syndrome. So somebody could say, okay, so they have vision problem. That actually is not true, because what happens, this visual problem within that particular domain, that has cascading effect on other parts. So they will have atypical eye gaze following. What happens then? They have atypical interactions, and then, because they have atypical interactions, they have very much delayed verbal language. And that also would apply with sleep. If, child, if a child has sleep disorder, of sleep problems, let's say, that will have cascading effect on their behavior. If they have problem with daytime behavior, then the interactions are different, and at the same time, their language will be delayed. So I wanted to show you what happens, for example, in children with Down syndrome. So up to 80% of children with Down syndrome, which is very much common developmental disorder, will have sleep problems. So not only these children have lower um, cognitive abilities and a lot of uh, um, medical problems due to, due to this genetic disorder, but they also suffer from sleep problems. The good part here is that some of my colleagues within the medical, uh, medical world, for example, Dr. Kathy Hill in Southampton and Professor Paul Greengrass, they, have a, they started to establish um, very early sleep management for a lot of children. What they have, they will have obstructive, uh, they will have obstructive um, sleep. So at night, because they cannot breathe normally, they will wake up. And they fragmented sleep, which is quality of sleep, was very, very impacted upon. Um, so I will just mention quickly, I was talking about napping, how important it is for typically developing children. Because people with, with um, Down syndrome have hugely problematic um, sleep uh, issues, um, um, background to sleep, sleep actually makes it worse for them during the, uh, for, for their learning. The same is with napping, and we have cross-checked our studies with US in Arizona and our, our own studies that, for example, people with, with Down syndrome, if they sleep, that has very negative impact on their learning. And that is due to the fact that we have to manage their sleep, that the quality, to, to come back to the quality of sleep, that we can enhance their learning as well. So now I wanted to quickly um, show you the, oops, sorry, what we are doing in my laboratory. So we have, because we know sleep is huge, it's mysterious, we still don't know many, many answers. Um, 
that sleep, is sleep, uh, sleep problems are specific to different developmental disorders. So we are looking at Down syndrome, they have obstructive sleep apnea. Williams syndrome, which is another genetic disorder, this due to their anxiety levels, they have problems with falling asleep. Fetal alcohol syndrome, which is very much growing developmental disorder in the UK, Australia, and Canada. Um, they also have huge sleep problems. Autism, um, they have frequent night wakings, very, very specific problems for in sleep. And ADHD, as I said, we have to be very careful in terms of diagnosis of ADHD, which I think in UK is much less. We are more reluctant in, in here to diagnose children with, with ADHD than US, which is, which is almost doubled in terms of um, estimated prevalence. And uh, we are looking also at anorexia and men with prostate cancer who also have huge sleep problems and cross-cultural. Um, I think I run out of my time <laughs> and I'm more than happy to, to speak later, but I would <coughs> like to acknowledge my laboratory, amazing doctorate students who are, who are just collecting data from all over the world and all our sponsors, Waterloo Foundation, Down Syndrome and Williams Syndrome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'd like to begin by saying that sleep is often considered one of our most intimate of behaviors, right? And we typically think of sleep loss as a personal problem. But today you're going to hear about several, several examples of our research which shows the cascading effects, as Dagmar has said, um, of sleep loss not only on individuals, but also on families, communities, and societies as a whole. It's really my pleasure to participate in this event uh, this evening, and my hope is that collectively, the data you'll see this evening will convince you that all of us, as individuals, families, communities, and societies, need to wake up to the importance of sleep. I want to introduce you to Amy Guthrie. She's a fictional stand-in for the roughly one in three American adults, and similar in the UK, who regularly doesn't get enough sleep. Like many of us here in this room, Amy rarely gets the seven to nine hours of sleep per night that her body needs to function optimally. I'd like to now take a look at the research conducted by myself and other sleep colleagues showing just five of the ways that chronic sleep loss affects Amy's brain, body, and behavior. Because she gets too little sleep, Amy is often forgetful and inattentive, so it's not just children that this is affecting. Uh, and she has trouble concentrating or problem solving. Long term, sleep loss may also be putting at Amy at increased risk for dementia, since we know we've seen in studies that during sleep the brain clears out toxins or plaque that are known to be associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease. It sort of acts as the brain's garbage disposal. When Amy's struggling with sleep, her physical health and functioning is also compromised. For instance, she's more vulnerable to uh, infectious illnesses, including the common cold. And our work and others has also shown that she's, more she's at increased risk for the development of chronic health conditions, including obesity, heart disease, and diabetes. 
Sleep problems are also putting Amy's mental health in jeopardy. We know again from our work and others that sleep problems are not only a symptom of virtually every known mental health condition, but they can also predict the onset of new mental health issues, including depression, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder, and even suicide. And our work has also shown that the having sleep problems can predict poor prognosis, even when given uh, the most evidence-based or effective mental health treatments. After one too many nights skimping on sleep, Amy's ability to perform even familiar and routine tasks that require chronic vigilance, like driving a car, suffers. In fact, sleeping less than five hours a night for just four or five consecutive nights can cause an otherwise healthy person like Amy to function as though she's legally drunk. Now the problem is, the more sleep-deprived Amy becomes, the less aware she is of her own level of impairment. It's kind of like the guy in the bar who has one too many drinks and thinks he's perfectly okay to drive home. This is a really toxic combination. And from a societal perspective, we should all be concerned about this because when you look at the data concerning the types of occupations that have some of the highest rates of job-related sleep deprivation, things like rail workers, uh, other um, people who are in the transportation industry, truck drivers, physicians, um, even the military, as I'll, as I'll soon discuss, these performance decrements have real issues for our public safety as well and our security. Now finally, like two-thirds of American adults, Amy's sleep is a shared behavior with her spouse. However, sleep research has traditionally viewed sleep at the level of the individual and has really largely neglected the fact that it's this shared health behavior. In this way, my research represents somewhat of a paradigmatic shift in traditional sleep research because um, my research considers how relationships can affect sleep and in turn, how sleep can affect relationships. So let me take this opportunity to introduce you to Amy's husband, Ben. This is Ben Guthrie. <laughs> He's a sergeant in the US Army. And unfortunately, Ben's sleep problems are even worse than his wife's. In 2015, Rand published the first ever comprehensive and independent investigation of the prevalence and consequences of sleep loss and sleep problems in the US military, as well as the programs and policies related to sleep in the military. And we found that 31% of US military personnel, like Ben, regular, regularly get five hours or less of sleep each night. Now remember that this is the level of sleep restriction that restriction that laboratory studies have shown can cause an otherwise healthy person to function as if they're legally drunk. Now Ben's sleep problems, unfortunately, go well beyond insufficient sleep duration. Since he's returned from Iraq, he's struggled with persistent insomnia and nightmares. And he's not alone in this. Sleep problems are the number one symptom reported by service members returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. And because sleep is a shared behavior with his spouse, uh, sleep and relationship problems often go hand in hand, exacerbating the challenges of reintegration for both Ben and Amy. In fact, my research in civilian and military couples has shown that sleep problems contribute to relationship distress, which can in turn contribute to more sleepless nights. So you can begin to imagine this vicious cycle that ensues. 
And this has implications for the uh, health and well-being of service members and their families, and also for our national security. Now there's one more piece of this family puzzle. Uh, Amy and Ben's daughter, Lisa. She's a junior in high school, and she's a casualty in the epidemic of sleep loss among American teens. <coughs> Roughly 90% of teens fail to get the recommended nine to 10 hours of sleep per night. This is, again, the recommendation by sleep scientists and pediatricians. And there are many reasons for Lisa's sleep loss, a busy social life, biological changes, and of course, technology and social media. But a major factor preventing Lisa from getting the sleep she needs is actually a matter of public policy, not hormones or Snapchat. And that policy is early school start times. Around the time of puberty, adolescents experience a delay in their biological clock, which is primarily driven by a shift in the release of the hormone melatonin. This means that teenagers are hormonally programmed to stay awake later and sleep in later. And yet, most middle and high schools in the U.S. start around 8 a.m. or earlier, forcing teenagers out of bed hours before their biological clocks tell them they're ready. <coughs> it's kind of like everyday jet lag. In fact, waking an adolescent up at 6 a.m. is the biological equivalent of waking an adult up at 4 a.m. because of this delayed release in the hormone melatonin. Not surprisingly, one in five teens regularly falls asleep in class, and sleepy teens suffer academically. But the, the consequences of adolescent sleep loss go well beyond the classroom. In fact, lots of the unpleasant characteristics that we chalk up to a teen being a teenager, and again, Dagmar referred to this, could actually be a product of chronic sleep deprivation. Moodiness, depression, risk-taking, poor judgment. Again, these could be a product of chronic sleep deprivation. And just like her parents, Lisa faces many other serious consequences from insufficient sleep, including elevated risk of substance abuse, suicide, obesity, and car crashes. Car crashes are the number one cause of death among teenagers. Now, conversely, kids in districts with later school start, start times get more sleep. They're more likely to show up for school and stay in school, which has a tremendous impact on, uh, on their academic performance um, and their likelihood of graduating, as well as their potential lifetime earnings. Their mental and physical health improves. Their families are happier. Even their communities are safer because car crash rates go down by up to 70% in one school district. And as Marco will later tell you, later school start times could even give a boost to the economy. Now the science on school start times is clear, but Lisa's school district hasn't made the switch yet, because frankly, changing start times is hard. It presents many logistical challenges that can have ripple effects for individuals, families, and communities as a whole. Updating bus routes, impact on traffic, sports, care before or after school. These are issues that come up time and again in district after district, and they're legitimate concerns. But when we prioritize these logistical issues over adolescents' biological need for sleep, we all pay the price. Now, 
the last thing I want to do is leave you only with the bad news. I mean, the last thing any one of us needs is one more thing to keep us up at night, right? So I'd like to leave you with some good news. Small changes at the individual, family, and community levels can make a big difference. First, at the individual level, set consistent wake-up times. This is the single most important cue for setting our internal biological clocks, which in turn is critical for setting us up for sleep success that night. Inconsistent wake-up times, and I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but including sleeping in on the weekends, while delicious, can disrupt sleep patterns and is associated with health consequences. At the family level, make bedrooms media-free zones. Social media, work, and video games are far too stimulating, and the light emitted from these devices can directly suppress the hormone melatonin, which signals sleep onset. Unfortunately, we found that over 70% of teens regularly send texts after 10 p.m. And by the way, for you parents in the audience, remember, your children are watching you. Children who have parents who have used technology in the bedroom are more likely to use technology in the bedroom themselves. So be a good role model. At the community level, we can encourage educators and policymakers to heed the science and support healthy start times. And finally, at the corporate level, and again, both Marcus and Marco will talk about this, we can encourage corporations to emphasize the importance of sleep through a variety of mechanisms and have a corporate culture that promotes um, healthy sleep. So I hope I've convinced you to conclude that although sleep and sleep loss are often considered these intimate behaviors, the consequences of sleep loss go well beyond the individual affecting our individual health, our family happiness, our community, public health and safety, and ultimately, as you'll see tonight, also the economy. So consider it a gift to yourself and to society as a whole to make sleep a priority and get a good night's sleep. Pleasant dreams. Good evening, my name's Marcus de Gangong. Uh, I represent a company called Third Pillar of Health. Uh, and my role this evening, I guess, is to kind of fit this within uh, the context of uh, an organisation, a company, and the people that work within that organisation. Also have a look at some of the things that we've found as we've worked with organisations. Um, so I think many of you uh, here tonight are probably pretty well aware that sleep deprivation is an issue that sort of pervades through society. Uh, at the moment. Uh, you may be interested to know that uh, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control in America, says that sleep deprivation has just overtaken obesity as America's greatest, sleep is uh, sorry, greatest health issue. Uh, the proportion of the population obtaining less than the recommended seven hours of sleep a night is rising at a fairly alarming but also regular level. Uh, and according to Warwick University, up to 20% of people in the developed world at any one time are suffering from sleep problems. So think about that within the context of an organisation and your employees, if you're a business owner, you're in HR, occupational health. Think about some of that for a little bit. So uh, sleep, uh, as I think you know, it's probably been discussed plenty enough today, is what we would, we would recommend or what we call the third pillar of health, I think, <laughs> Most public health initiatives, like Change for Life, have been pretty good at pointing out the exercise and nutrition and the benefits 
You know, we all know to eat five a day to try and get 150 minutes of exercise a week. But I think sleep is the one thing that has undoubtedly been left off. But yet it's crucial uh, from a psychological and physiological perspective that we all get sufficient good quality sleep. Not just sufficient sleep, but good quality sleep as well. So think also from our own perspectives. When we've had a bad night, how is it that we feel? So we are, you know, we're going to feel drowsy. Uh, you know, we're probably going to be, uh, our mood might falter. We're probably less interested in socialising. Uh, and also there's obviously the risks that I think has already been discussed of things like micro sleep. So imagine you're driving along in a car or one of your employees is driving along in a car. You have a two second micro sleep at 70 miles an hour. You've covered roughly 60 metres without any control of that motor vehicle at all. And unfortunately, we see it too often uh, on our roads and the impacts that has. So let's have a quick look at some of the uh, implications of poor sleep to the individual. Uh, and Wendy very kindly uh, did most of this slide for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just to put, I guess, some of the stats around it. So uh, according to uh, the US National Health and Examination Survey, uh, sleeping for less than six hours a night increases our risk of obesity by 23% versus seven to eight hour sleepers. That rises to 50% in five hour sleepers and 73% in those getting four or less hours of sleep a night. Uh, as mentioned again, diabetes, Boston University Medical School uh, found that reducing sleep from seven to five hours a night increased our risk of diabetes by two and a half times. Uh, and a study here by UCL and Warwick Universities, which you will know very well, uh, into 10,000 civil servants showed that reducing sleep time from seven to five hours a night doubled our risk of dying of heart disease. So these obviously all have uh, implications from uh, a health perspective, but also from an absenteeism, presenteeism, and company cost perspective as well. Factor in the fact that, as, uh, as Wendy once again said, that we are much more likely to be off ill with a cold or flu uh, if we're getting insufficient sleeps. So you're four times more likely to catch a cold virus if you sleep less than six hours a night versus someone sleeping seven or more hours a night. Okay? Think about that for just a second. Uh, sleep's obviously been linked to cancerous tumour growth uh, in animals, uh, and there are numerous studies showing the increased health problems in shift workers but also a link between shift working and low sleep duration. So if we look at the impact on performance and safety, uh, and I'll start with the second one. Uh, so a study done at Pennsylvania University took uh, three, <coughs> three groups of volunteers, uh, and they split them into three different groups. And over a two-week period, one group was allowed to sleep eight uh, or so hours a night. A second group was restricted to six hours a night, and a third group to just four hours of sleep a night. Throughout each of those 14 days, they tested them with standard cognition tests, which are used uh, throughout the world, and they monitored how they, they performed over the course of that two weeks. If you see the graphs, I haven't got them out there today, but there's a pretty steady decline. And by the end of that two-week period, those that had been restricted to six hours of sleep a night were making 11 times more errors in tests throughout the day than they were at the beginning of that uh, trial when they were well rested and those that had been restricted to just the four hours of sleep uh, were making 14 times more errors in each of the tests throughout the day. So as I said sleepiness obviously accounts for roughly 20% of accidents on UK roads 
uh, and sleep deprivation affects the flow of blood to three areas of the brain, uh, which are crucial in decision-making, attention span, and the speed at which we adopt new information. So I can't think of too many roles in the workforce where those aren't fairly important components of performance. Uh, and for those of you in academia, clearly uh, pretty important too. So other considerations in terms of uh, productivity, in addition to those, I guess, that we've mentioned, uh, is that you know, we tend to find it much more difficult to maintain our motivations. We're not going to really want to take on new tasks or anything that's particularly challenging uh, within a workplace. Uh, our work-life balance uh, also tends to suffer. So if we haven't got the personal energy to make the contribution that we want to and need to in all aspects of our life, then obviously it starts to suffer. Our professional and personal relationships can become strained uh, when we're sleep deprived uh, and we then start to become resentful <coughs> of the causes. So if someone feels that they're perhaps working too long or they've uh, got too great a level of work stress and that's impacting on their ability to contribute in all aspects of their life, then you're going to start to see pretty low levels of engagement with that employee or those group of employees who are sleeping less. Uh, as said, our judgment, decision-making and perception become impaired. Uh, and Dagmara mentioned, I think it was Margaret Thatcher, who is famous for sleeping four to five hours a night. Uh, there's also a current president of somewhere uh, who boasts about their sleep deprivation. Uh, some of you in the room might question their decision-making abilities as well. Uh, we also lose coordination. So it's not just a mental thing. It's also our motor skills. So imagine someone... Uh, on a heavy plant or machinery, on a tight building site or on a crane. They're not the sort of people we really want to be sleep-deprived either. So what I want to do now is take uh, a brief look at the uh, implications of poor sleep to organisations. Uh, and rather than uh, do Marquet's presentation for him, I'll just show you one slide. Uh, and this was a study done by the Integrated Benefits Institute and the American Co College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. Uh, and the thing that I kind of want to point out on this is that in terms of productivity, so from a purely productivity perspective, the single greatest cost to organisations is fatigue, and the fourth greatest problem is, uh, or fourth greatest issue is sleeping problems. You can then factor in medical and pharmacy, bearing in mind this is based on a US healthcare model, not necessarily a UK healthcare model, and when you look at the total costs, fatigue is significantly higher. Those of you that work in organisations with high-quality health and well-being uh, programmes uh, have probably done the step challenge, the, you know, the five-a-day, you know, all the things around exercise, all the things around nutrition uh, you know, that you're supposed to do. But actually, I guess when we look at the evidence produced by this piece of research, are those activities actually having the greatest return on investment for that organisation? And would sleep uh, programmes on sleep also help the organisation increase that overall return on the wellness? I hope that doesn't take any of your work, Mark. <laughs> no, you haven't got that slide. Excellent. Uh, now to have a quick look at some of the stuff that we've found uh, when working. So we've worked with, uh, as Jack very kindly said, sort of 11 police forces here in the UK. We've just started a three-and-a-half-year programme with Transport for London, and we've worked with some other shift-working populations as well. Uh, and so what we found is that 
uh, of shift workers say that fatigue interferes with their daily work activities at least a few times a week, and that rises to 69% where it's at least a few times a month. Average weekday sleep duration uh, varies from just under six hours, 5.9 hours, to 6.47 hours a night. Uh, so that's the average sleep duration on a work day across those populations. And average day off sleep duration is between 5.9 hours to 7.4 hours a night. So generally speaking, people are not getting sufficient good quality sleep, and there are very large numbers getting under five or under six hours of sleep a night. 87% uh, of staff are not obtaining the sleep that they need or that they feel they need to function properly and effectively. Uh, a significant percentage are at risk of sleep disorders, especially restless le leg syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia, but a very, very small proportion of those at risk have actually been diagnosed with those conditions, and clearly diagnosis would be uh, very helpful in terms of getting them back uh, on the straight and narrow. 85% uh, of shift workers do not feel as though they achieve enough sleep subjectively, uh, we find caffeine very regularly being used as a crutch uh, and caffeine being consumed right up till bedtime. Uh, that was especially the case in the police. We didn't ask them about the donuts, but uh, I think you can all see them with a cup of cupboard joe. Uh, and actually, interestingly, a lot of shift workers are actually overweight or obese, and that's a function of obviously not getting sufficient good quality sleep, but also, I guess, the fact that uh, in the police we found that 82% rarely or never had the opportunity to take the scheduled rest breaks that they, were, that they were supposed to have during a day. That impacted on their food choices, so they basically had, they could only really eat fast food. So that's why you see the guys in the service stations pick up Ginsters pasty, whatever else it might be, because they don't have enough time to sit down, relax, and have a healthy and nutritious meal. So there's another, a number of things that come, in, uh, come into contention. Battery's low, Jack. Uh, is that going to be... <laughs> <coughs> Let me, I'll crack on with, okay. shall I just, should be okay, good eh, right eh? Okay, so also day populations, uh, so we've done uh, work with a number of uh, organisations, big and small, uh, I'm not sure which ones I'm allowed to mention, which ones I'm not, so I won't, um, but what we found is actually, you know, fatigue is still an issue uh, with these guys and sleep deprivation, although obviously less so than it is the case with the shift workers. Uh, but I think some of the more interesting things, average workday sleep duration was just six hours, 33 minutes a night, even in day working populations. Uh, and that rose to seven hours and 37 minutes uh, on, day, on days off. So as Wendy said, you know, one of the things that is always recommended is that we keep this consistent routine throughout the week, whether it's weeks uh, during the week or at the weekend. Uh, but actually what we find is people are going to sleep later at the weekend and sleeping for longer. And it's generally pretty consistent at basically an hour more sleep at a weekend. So you are essentially, to all intents and purposes, giving yourself jet lag over the course of a weekend so that by the time you hit Monday morning, it's going to take an extra couple of hours to get back into the swing of things. Uh, a significant number, uh, although this was actually in a population where it was particularly high stress work, were deemed to be at risk of insomnia. Again, very few diagnosed. Uh, and 79% of the staff, again, did not feel as though they achieved the sleep they need. The main reasons for those were personal worry, work worry, and people just simply not having enough time to fit in the sleep that they need. 
I shall briefly touch on some of the good and bad practices. Uh, so there's obviously a number of good reasons to start taking a look at tiredness and fatigue in uh, corporate populations, whether it's sort of safety, uh, the energy of the workforce, work-life balance, uh, engagement, uh, productivity, and then things like the absenteeism, presenteeism, and all those sort of metrics. I guess this is what we increasingly find uh, whenever we speak to organisations, especially shift-working organisations. Everyone wants to find the silver bullet. Uh, but guess what? Uh, there isn't one, uh, unfortunately. There are lots of tools out there. So you've got, there's lots of good quality things. You can use the Networth scale, a Pittsburgh scale. You've got the HSC fatigue risk, um, risk index. You know, there's lots of good things out there. Some of them are objective, some of them are objective, uh, but it's a question of combining them into a tool and it's never going to be one size fits all. It's always going to depend on the organisation. Uh, napping rooms. I did a white paper on napping uh, a couple of years back, just before I released the first round of results from the police, which uh, the media had a bit of a field day on. But actually, it's quite a sensible suggestion, introducing napping uh, environments, in shift, especially in shift-working populations, uh, in the middle of a shift would allow them to perform better throughout the rest of the shift and also would help them drive home more safely at the end, especially after a night shift. And that's something... Uh, we recommend as well things like healthcare and nurses. Too many stories, unfortunately, of people doing night shift work and crashing on the way back home. And I think for the police, road traffic accidents is still the greatest cause of loss of life in this country. Uh, so best practices, things to do is uh, we recommend sort of run an assessment. So basically understand, do you have an issue? And what, if you have an issue, what is the extent, impact and causes of the problems? And are there particular groups within a workforce where the issue is more prevalent, uh, then it's a question of getting through to the management, explaining what's been discovered uh, and what's the next steps, making sure that policies and procedures actually reflect uh, the issues in the business. Just well, that's the last slide, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> issues in the business. Uh, and then start looking at the uh, intervention. So people, most companies that I come across go, I want an intervention, whereas actually the intervention is the fourth thing on the list. It's once you've gone through the process properly, then you can start to go, right, is it an organisational intervention? Is it cultural? Is it something to do with a shift pattern? Is it something you can do on an educational perspective? Or is it something uh, that you might want to use a technological intervention? So there might be some instances where something like a light therapy intervention would work for a certain group of people, uh, but that's the final uh, basic piece in the jigsaw. Um, I'll hand over if, we, if we've got another laptop in a minute. Uh, if you get hold of the slides, there's some free resources. So we've written lots of uh, white papers and stuff like that. Uh, and you can have a look at that. And there's some contact details. So Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, not Facebook, I'm not on Facebook, but come and find us. So I will wrap up this uh, session to talk a little more about the economic impact of uh, insufficient sleep. So as you have heard today, in insufficient sleep is associated with, you know, can affect your mental health, your physical health, um, and against this background, and about 45% of Americans not sleeping enough, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, which is equivalent of Public Health England, declared last year insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. But now you think, well, that's just a, a problem of the Americans, but it's actually not. It's a global problem. For instance, we find that in the UK, about 35% of people are not sleeping enough. We see that in Germany, about 30% of people are not sleeping enough. 
And in Canada, about 26% are not, 26 of the population are not sleeping enough. Last but not least, in Japan, 56% of people not sleeping enough, which might not come as a surprise for you uh, in a country which actually has no word for death of overwork. So while there's a lot of research done on the economic impact of chronic conditions such as obesity or diabetes, not that much research has been conducted on the, actual uh, the effect of insufficient sleep. And against this background, RAND Europe and with my co-author uh, Wendy and my colleague Martin Stepanek, who is in the, in the audience, we, we um, published this report on the economic impact of insufficient sleep, which looks at the, at the problem for five different countries. So funnily enough, the research idea for this report came from my own um, experience and own personal background and my family. So I'm an economist by trade, and as an economist, we usually try to understand the economic impact of the things you do during the two-thirds of your life when you're awake. So you go to school, you study, you go to work, you consume, you save, and you invest. But then I had children. And as many other parents of newborns, I started to realize that sleep, or actually a lack of sleep, is really affecting your health and your productivity. So something I felt throughout the working day when I drove to work. So I live in St. Albans, I have to drive to Cambridge every day. That was really sometimes horrible to drive here because I just didn't understand how I got to the office on, on a lack of sleep. It's also, I felt more irritable on a lack of sleep. I just didn't really work well. When I was in the office, I wasn't really functioning well. Um, and actually, the moment when the espresso machine became my best friend, I started to realize something is really not, not quite right. Um, and with my personal experience and its negative individual effects and the fact that millions of people worldwide are not sleeping enough, I wanted to understand what all these individual effects of insufficient sleep actually mean in the big picture. So basically, we wanted to understand how all these individual effects of insufficient sleep coming together, because as we said, a lot of people in the world are not sleeping enough. So how big a problem is this, specifically from an economic perspective? And does insufficient sleep only affect our health and, 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 and well-being, or is it actually really a problem also um, for the workplace? And I think our study was really one of the first who tried to illuminate the link between insufficient sleep and cumulative economic losses for national economies. And the results we saw from the study were really startling. So our study shows or reveals that insufficient sleep is associated with profound economic losses for five of the biggest economies in the world. So, for instance, the United States, due to the size of its economy, in absolute terms, sustains by far the biggest loss uh, due to its economy, roughly about 411 billion U.S. dollars a year. So this is, to put the number into perspective, that's about roughly twice the annual revenue of the technology company Apple. And that corresponds to about 2.3% of its GDP. Japan, in relative terms, suffers the biggest loss, about 2.9% of its GDP on an annual basis, which corresponds to 138 billion U.S. dollars. And as you can see from the slide behind me, the other countries we looked at, Canada, the United Kingdom, and Germany, also have relatively large economic losses due to their population and not sleeping enough. So as you can see, the United Kingdom somewhere loses about 50 billion US dollars a year on an annual basis, uh, which is co corresponding to about 1.9% of its GDP. So these numbers really paint a bleak picture. People are not sleeping enough. This affects their health and productivity, and subsequently might have a negative impact on the economy. But actually, our study shows that there has also some positive aspects. So our study shows that small changes could actually make a big difference. So we see that if those people who now sleep somewhere less than six hours a night only began to sleep somewhere between six to seven hours instead, 
this could already add billions um, of dollars to national economies. So for instance, the United States, if their population of, the, of those people who sleep less than six hours or now sleep somewhere between six to seven hours instead, this could add about 226 billion on an annual basis to the US economy in GDP terms. In Germany as well, this could add about 34 billion a year and to the United Kingdom, roughly 30 billion a year. So now you think about how on earth did they come up with these numbers? So to, to look, to, to show the, the impact of insufficient sleep on the national economy, uh, we built an inno innovative macroeconomic model that tries to mimic the behavior of individuals in an economy, just like in reality. Um, and those individuals, they go to school, they go to work, they consume, they save money, they invest, and at some point in their life, they retire. So you can think about this model very similar to what the Treasury or the Bank of England uses to forecast the eco economy of the, of the United Kingdom and other countries. And within this model, we run different simulations and scenarios. So in, in the first place, we look at how would the economy evolve with the current sleep behavior of the population. And in the counterfactual scenario, we look at how much could you actually add to the economy in terms of economic output if people would, would change the sleep behavior, for instance, start to sleep in a healthy sleep range, somewhere between seven and nine hours a night. Um, and within this model, insufficient sleep affects individuals in many different ways, but we specifically look at three effects. And the first effect is mortality. So our meta-analysis shows that people who regularly sleep less than six hours a day have a 13% greater chance of dying at any given point in their life, at any given point in time, than people who get between seven and nine hours a night, which is the recommended hours of sleep we should get. So this mortality effect decreases the labor supply of an economy, and even if those people might be replaced, productivity suffers. So think about last time you started a new job. It's literally impossible to be as up to speed uh, at the beginning as, as later on. The second effect uh, we look at is productivity at the workplace, and not surprisingly, as Marcus said, we find that insufficient sleep is negatively associated with productivity at work. And this is specifically driven by two effects, so absenteeism, so when people don't show up at work, for instance, because they have a common flu um, or, or a common cold, or they actually come to work, but they function at a suboptimal value. So this is basically me um, after, after looking after my children the whole night, being at my workplace and literally falling asleep. Mm -hmm. um, and we find that those sleeping less than six hours a night compared to those in the healthy sleep range, are about 2.4% less productive than those in the, in, in, in the healthy sleep range, as I said. And each year, in, in those economies that we look at, these five, millions of working days are lost globally due to insufficient sleep and actually really pose a huge economic burden to companies. And the third effect we look at is something that, that Wendy and Dagmar touched upon uh, just a couple of minutes ago, is the decreased academic performance of children who don't sleep enough. So we know that insufficient sleep leads to suboptimal school performance of children in younger years, which hinders their development. And we know that, for instance, insufficient sleep leads to lower academic grades, and this affects the qualifications children or young adults achieve and the jobs they get in the future. And both of these affect the economy in terms of future financial earnings those individuals may get. And again, as Wendy said at the beginning, we've we specifically look at, at the effect, what, the, what would be the effect of, of teenagers or young adults sleeping more in a specific report that we uh, published 
recently, a month ago, where we tried to look at what would be the economic impact of later school start times in the United States. So as Wendy said just now, on average in the US, schools start somewhere between 8 a.m. or even earlier. And we run a hypothetical policy experiment to look at what would be the economic impact if actually nationwide schools would start only half an hour later, so somewhere about 8.30 a.m. in the morning. And in this model, we specifically look at two effects, car crashes. So we know uh, car crashes are the leading cause of death of, of teenagers, and we know that um, if you would um, delay school start time from, um, by one hour, mortality rates would decrease by somewhere between um, 16%, which has been shown by previous studies. And the second effect we look at is, again, the impact on the academic performance. So we know that each hour of sleep on, in teenagers increases their probability to finish high school or attend college by somewhere between 8 and 13%. So these are really significant effects um, that can actually uh, impact the economy as a whole. And what we find is that if you would change school start times in the U.S. to 8.30 a.m. nationwide, this could add about $9 billion U.S. dollars uh, only after two years if you would do this um, policy change. So really the effects would, would, would kick in very early. After five years, that would be about $37 billion. And after 10 years, that's roughly about $83 uh, billion U.S. dollars. So on an annual basis, on average, that would increase U.S. GDP by about $9 billion U.S. dollars, which is roughly about the annual revenue of Major League Baseball, I think roughly about the, the annual TV license income of the Premier League football team. So just to put that number into perspective. And to wrap up this session, I hope, I think, and to conclude, we hope we convinced you that sleep, improving sleep behavior and sleep duration uh, could not only improve individuals' health and productivity, it could improve the development of our children, of our teenagers, and actually overall could increase or improve the world's bottom line. So definitely a win-win all around, I would say. And I think if you haven't put your sleep yet, which might be talking about so much sleep, I would like to open the floor for your questions. So uh, do we have some roving mics there to take some brilliant... Uh, so, uh, who has questions <coughs> for the panel? So, what is the impact of wake up days and um, go to bed days, even if you get eight hours of Wendy, do you want to say? Well, uh, so actually, the, there are individual differences in sleep-wake preferences. Um, we tend to live in societies that really um, have a preference towards um, morning larks, and so... Um, uh, Right, morning looks. Uh, the evening owls often get a bad rap, um, but the, so there's actually nothing particularly wrong with going to bed later and sleeping in later, provided that you have sufficient opportunity for sleep. The problem is that the, our world doesn't often cooperate with that schedule. So often people who have um, shifted schedules towards um, more late night owls, um, they have to operate in a world that doesn't abide by that. So they end up being sleep restricted. But if you're left to your own devices and you really can uh, function that way, which many students can, particularly university students, it's a time in your life when uh, you might uh, get to enjoy that freedom. But the problem is uh, that the more you get used to that schedule, eventually something might come into play um, that will force you um, onto uh, one of the, an, an earlier schedule, which would be very difficult to adjust to. But the key is to allow adequate opportunity for sleep, and within uh, a relatively normal um, uh, evening hours is generally recommended. I could add to it that um, going to bed later and waking up late 
it's okay if, you, if your sleep is of good quality as well. So the quality is as important as, as the quantity of sleep. And also if you desynchronize your sleep from your melatonin secretion, which is actually getting, we are secreting much less in the morning, that is not very good for your, for your hormonal balance and health as, as, as whole. Um, yes, so to answer the questions you said, so I, I, I was in the napping industry for about four years and I could probably do another session like this on it, but I'll keep it brief. Um, so the question for those that didn't hear it is, is napping a good thing and can it disrupt your sleep? So napping has been shown to be extremely beneficial from a health and a productivity perspective. Um, it's something I personally do every work day, but I possibly won't do it at a weekend uh, because I know it's significantly my performance in the afternoon and the evening because I'm I'm more of an, uh, an owl so I'll work later uh, so I know it helps me certainly Don't, the, I guess the things that they always say is you shouldn't nap too long during the day you shouldn't nap too close to bedtime so ideally you want to keep a nap to certainly under 90 minutes and finish it within three hours of bed um, if you are an insomniac the napping is perhaps something that re- shouldn't you shouldn't be doing on a daily basis it can really impact uh, your ability to get some nighttime sleep but overall, napping is an extremely healthy uh, and productive habit and it's something that I would thoroughly recommend people do. And I would say again, it's appropriately timed and duration of nap. And yeah. actually, it's 20 to 30 minutes. Truly, a cat nap is yeah. most effective. Anything longer than that, and then your body actually goes into um, a, a full sleep cycle, and you actually might feel groggier afterwards. And I would also mind you that if you have a strong need to nap for longer than 20 minutes per day, if you even have that luxury, um, I, I would be mindful of the quality of your nighttime sleep and the possibility that you that there may be something else going on with your sleep. Generally speaking. For instance, in the U.S., where we're not a napping culture, again, I don't doubt, I don't at all disagree with some of the research showing that there are <coughs> benefits of appropriately timed and uh, duration of naps. Uh, but actually, in, in cultures where we don't um, typically nap, the people who are napping, who are napping excessively long, are often doing so because they're um, trying to make up for their poor quality nighttime sleep, and sometimes that's in the presence of a sleep disorder. So I would be mindful of the reason for the nap. Well. Um. Do we have one, one at the back? Uh, my question is about continuity. How important is that the eight hours are continuous? Uh, I also have a repeat program. Uh, myself, I, I sometimes sleep for four hours, and I wake up for two hours, and I sleep for two or three more hours. Uh, so how important is that these eight or seven hours are continuous? Yes. So, um, as we said about individual variations, usually people have continuous seven, well, hopefully six to eight hours. Uh, however, if you get very good quality of that sleep within those few sleep cycles, let's say four hours, beautiful sleep cycles within that time, so your fragmentation is very small and then you wake up and again two hours, I personally would think that there's nothing wrong with it. But if you do think that there's something not right with your sleep in terms of following day, daytime functioning, uh, we tend to recommend to go to sleep clinic to have a look. Mm -hmm. But I personally don't think there is anything wrong with it.
there, there's actually there, there's sort of a, uh, an interest in what's called segmented sleep, which yeah. is exactly that. Um, and frankly, there's just not enough research right now to demonstrate uh, the, the, whether there are health benefits or consequences. The truth of the matter is what we know robustly is that most adults function best with roughly eight hours or seven to nine hours of consolidated sleep. And what we know is a major factor uh, reporting that leads to reports of poor quality sleep is fragmented or disrupted sleep. So from that, you can extrapolate <coughs> that, generally speaking, we perceive our sleep uh, to be better, and we know that there are benefits of consolidated sleep. We don't know much about the long-term consequences of purposeful segmented sleep. What I can give you an example, there's nothing worse with what our adolescents nowadays do, but we'll put alarm clocks on their on the iPhones or whatever social media they have, and they will, ha they will check every two hours their social media. And that is terrible sleep fragmentation. And th this leads to huge problems. Why is it more of a problem with the people Why are they high risk? High risk for the sleep problems. Yeah. To be honest, we don't know. So there have been quite a few studies recently on, on the um, levels of melatonin, that they have reduced melatonin levels. Then there was national study looking, give, prescribing melatonin to individuals with autism. However, we don't see much improvement in, in people with autism receiving melatonin. But what we started to do, so in recent years, they've been huge trigger for people with autism to, to look at sleep hygiene, to <coughs> go to bed early, lights out, and etc. But what we've noticed, and, and my group, well, we only started that last month, to actually go to individuals with autism who actually can, can speak, high functioning, what triggers them to fall asleep. Maybe we are doing something wrong in terms of professional uh, advice that what we are giving them, that having lights on, music on, maybe actually gets them to bed. And we are asking parents and individuals to do quite opposite. So that's why I said during my talk that this is very much syndrome-specific. Every, every single syndrome has quite different problems. But we also know that people with autism and a lot of developmental disorders, they have very high cortisol levels. And I'm sure individuals at high... Uh, flying jobs, they have very high cortisol levels, they go to the gym, completely opposite what we say, high cortisol levels will not allow them to fall asleep. And people with autism have been shown to have that as well. Anxiety levels, yeah. Um, the lady there. Uh, my question is, uh, what can insomnia do? Uh, people will allow uh, themselves uh, nine hours a night to sleep, but they end up getting two hours a night uh, chronically, and they go to GP and say, can I have some medicine? And they say, no, why not? I'm happy to prescribe you sleeping pills because they're, they're addicted. What, so, what can those people do then? Well, they can seek behavioral therapy, which is actually the most effective treatment for insomnia. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is as effective and more enduring than um, any pharmacologic treatment. Um, so I'd be happy to talk about it in the reception, but I think we're being given... One more. I think we can have one more just, just, a, just a very quick point on that. Is I think too many GPs in the UK only have a 10-minute window in which to diagnose and treat a problem, and it's very easy in the UK for them to go, there's a, there's a prescription pills, bang, rather than being referred to something like CBT. 
But the awareness is also not there. Yes. In US, there are sleep clinics, and we don't have many. Not many. So, you're right here. Yeah. We have time for one last question. Uh, the gentleman there in the red star. They have just come out with some new statistics. Uh, so it is something called sleep efficiency uh, of 75%. So that term means the percentage of time you spend in bed that you're asleep, uh, that you shouldn't have more than two awakenings that you're conscious of, and they shouldn't necessarily be for any more than, I think, is it 20 to 30 minutes? So that's what has recently been released as defined as quality sleep. So, so what we do, for, for example, for children, we give actigraphs, which are not Fitbits because they are not very accurate. Um, to, and within their one sleep cycle, when children have, we, that actually gives a measure of movements. If it is more than two seconds, it will pick up. So the, when we see a lot of peaks, that is, means that the child is waking up, waking up at night, that means that it's high fragmentation. So anything for children over 25%, quite yeah. similar, we would, we would have a look at that particular night to see how often they wake up and also for how long to, to have a look. Some children, for example, somebody asked about autism, they have very specific, their wakings are for very prolonged periods of time. Other children, they, for example, with Down syndrome, they will wake up for, for shorter time because of their sleep apneas. Adults also have huge uh, problems with sleep apnea, snorings, and etc. And snoring actually increases fragmentation. So that's why we are talking about quality. But I will say that we have a um, tendency as scientists and uh, to to want to quantify what quality is, and it feels like this airy fairy thing. No, but actually, not. what quality is is a subjective experience. So really, the best way to ask somebody about the quality of their sleep is how well did you sleep last night? Was it deep? Was it refreshing? That is actually subjectively the greatest amount of data um, is is about sleep quality as a subjective experience. And by the way, insomnia, which is the number one most common sleep disorder, is an entirely a subjective experience. There's there's no objective marker um, or quantitative dimension of uh, insomnia. It's about how you slept last night. How did you feel about your sleep? So these uh, objective markers um, actually can map on pretty nicely to sleep quality as a subjective experience. But at the end of the day, um, it's how refreshed did you how do, refreshed do you feel in the morning? How well did you sleep last night? It's a very, uh, there's definitely correlations with these objective measures, but it's a unique dimension of sleep um, that's based on the subjective experience. If you wish to, to, to talk more about the REM and non-REM and sleep spindles, I'm happy to talk about <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's worth saying that if you, wanna, if you have any questions for the panellists, they will be around uh, in the uh, reception, which is downstairs now. You're all invited for drinks and nibbles. Uh, so I'd just like to thank all of the panellists for their time today and uh, thank you for attending as well.